Welcome to the Notion Podcast. This is Reimagining. Hi, I'm Paul. I'm with Stephen, as always. It's very usual, but this time for a new series, very on point with the situation we're still living through the COVID-19 coronavirus economical crisis that we're living through. It's called Reimagining. You came up with that series and the title. So can you tell us a little bit more about why we're doing this and how you're feeling about all this as well? It's an extraordinary period we're in where everybody's facing a very, very similar experience. Mm -hmm. And obviously, the way that experience manifests individually and organizationally can be different. You know, there's a huge amount of commonality. And I was talking to a lot of our founders about the journey they'd been on. And I just kept hearing the same things over and over. How did we come to terms with the changes that we needed to make? How have we recovered from the shock? How are we rebounding as a business? And then interestingly, how do we reimagine our business, the problem we solve, the customers we serve, and the future of our industry? And that is common to every founder, every company around the world. They're all going through that process. Yeah, and so we came up with a series of questions that we are going to ask a few founders. It's fascinating. We're recording this after having done a few, so we already know that the content is actually very good. The first of which will be today with Richard, Richard Balter in hospitality. But without going through all the questions, the first question you're going to be asking every guest is, when and how did you realize the significance of the COVID crisis? So may I ask you the question, when did you, Stephen, start <laughs> to realize all this was going down? It was over the weekend of the 10th, 11th of March. I think that's around about the right time. And we were due to be doing an event in Prague a week and a half later. And I was so resistant to cancelling, yeah. so resistant. I just didn't want to do it. And I was like, no, unequivocally, no, no, we're going to go ahead. And I went home and I was chatting to my wife and my children and watched the news. And I thought, this is, this is big. <laughs> this is big. And no, we need to cancel it. We need to cancel all travel. And everybody needs to work from home. And for me, it happened in less than 24 hours. It went quick. It went really quick. Yeah. Uh, for me, I, I got it slightly earlier because of simply my travel profile. I travel a lot to Asia, as you know, not these days. Obviously, we're all working from home. So I remember as a news junkie, I was kind of reading about, you know, it's always fascinating. You hear about like some strange virus out of China, like in January, and you're like, okay, that's kind of quirky. And then I started to feel... Something is off because I work a lot with airlines and travel organizations in general. I think I realized there will be a domino effect. I wouldn't have realized it would touch Europe that fast or the US or other parts of the world. I think on February 10th, that's when I canceled all my travels. I was in Dubai actually, and I said, you know what? This is not going to go down well. It was less about the virus itself, more about like, the fear and certainty, like, oh, airlines are going to shut down, you know, routes and airports are going to shut down and borders will be closed. And, you know, the reason I thought all this is not because I'm smart. It's because of a shared passion of you and me about an author, Nicholas Taleb, who is very good at talking about these fat tales, these events that seem unpredictable. And probably because I had read, and you, I know that you've read a lot of what he's written as well. I, I probably kind of ticked in the back of my head. I'm like, mm, something is bigger than we think. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. With hindsight, you know, you can say, oh, Gosh, should have realized. I, I didn't. I don't think any one of us could have foreseen any of this. Not that, oh, we'll be working from home in, in London. And, 
And to, to a quote that I really love about Taleb that will probably define a lot of what we're going to talk about with our guests, he says, anti-fragility is beyond resilience or robustness. The resilient resists shocks and stays the same. The anti-fragile gets better. And I think that's yeah. exactly what we're going to see here. And they are all quite impressive. They are all anti-fragile. They will all emerge from this a lot stronger. So to go directly to the meat of the topic, we chose obviously hospitality at first because hospitality is, wow, it's probably the industry that has been touched the most with this crisis. So who do we have today, Stephen, to talk about this and his feeling? So our first guest is Richard Valter. Richard is the founder of Muse. He's a hotelier turned tech founder. So back in 2012, I think it was, Richard was launching a new hotel in Prague, which is where Muse is based. And he was searching for a software platform to run his hotel on, one that kind of met the vision that he had for the business. And he couldn't find what he was looking for. What's more, he was shocked to find some of the world's biggest hotels were still operating on DOS. And <laughs> when you think that was launched, I mean, I can barely remember that. And I was using those products. I used to work as a lobbyist for the hospitality industry. And yeah, it was back in 1960, not me, but their system. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, even further back. I don't think... Richard probably realized what a tough journey it was going to be. But um, <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll touch on that a little bit. But in June 2018, they raised a 6 million euro Series A. That was with Notion Capital. And then in August of last year, raised a $33 million Series B with Battery Ventures. So take yourselves back to the beginning of this year, early 2020, eight years after founding the business. Business is growing so fast. Revenues growing, hotels growing, more hotels on the system, employee numbers going up, all pointing up and to the right. Business was looking good. And then the wheels fell off. The hotel industry around the world shut its doors. And I think it's fair to say, isn't it, Richard, that Muse has undergone a pretty rapid transformation in just a matter of few weeks when your market closed for the foreseeable future. So we're going to put you on the spot to kind of take us through that experience, if that's okay. Yep, that definitely is. <laughs> Thank you. So let's just jump straight in. When and how did you realize the significance of this pandemic on the industry as a whole and on your business? I'd love to say that it was in January and I had the foresight of everything and this was part of a long planning process. But the truth is, it was, I think like most businesses, it was those manic few weeks in, in March where I feel that even with hindsight, it feels like everything then moved at warp speed. The way that you could actually kind of take in information, like I'm, I'm quite a voracious reader anyway, but I feel that, you know, the amount of things that I had managed to think about or the, the, the amount of, I guess, great information that was actually kind of out there within a really, really quick period of time to be able to kind of assess, you know, what are the risks? You know, I think everyone became very au fait with understanding how quickly a vaccine actually takes to develop the idea of you know what it's actually going to have as an effect not just on on travel but maybe the economy itself and i think at least in my mind it was a transformation from at the beginning of march thinking you know this is just some kind of blip to i think by march 20th knowing that this is probably going to be a 12 month 18 month disruptor to most businesses and most economies all around the world um, and it's going to be something that's going to be severe and it's going to be something that I, I don't think most of the businesses most of the world are going to come out of it on the other side in the same way that they came going into it and i think that 
that's for example what, what I think drove a lot of our decision making at the time. And how? I mean, maybe this is difficult to answer, but how? How did it feel? How did you feel going through that? It was strange because my my experience is that going through fast growth, it really isn't what you learn about or what you read about in a lot of books about you know growing a company because i think most companies you know there's profit and loss the idea is that it kind of happens one to one and i think what's different about saas businesses and what's different about fast growing businesses that i think is difficult to explain until you actually living within it is that everything happens at a much much quicker rate and so some of the problems that sometimes you would like to actually kind of fix some of the structural issues that you can actually kind of see emerging you don't really have the luxury of time and of real consideration to be able to kind of think about them systematically so i think one of the things that was mainly going through my mind is that i looked at what are the basic things in our business that represent a huge risk if we persist with them what are the things that are not going completely right right now and so if we're in this kind of position what is probably the thing that we should stop investing in and what's the thing that will require some investment in to be able to at least maintain some semblance of growth a certain semblance of development of the company and what are the ways that we're going to be able to actually kind of ride out of this what are the fundamentals that we should actually kind of keep on investing in that drove a lot of the decision making in those frenzied weeks you had to come to terms pretty rapidly with some pretty profound changes to the business. How did you reconcile yourself to the changes you needed to make? You talked about the processes, but fundamentally yeah. you had to make some massive changes, didn't you? It was really this kind of pivotal moment when our VP of Finance, Pavla, created this, this scenario for us. We just looked at it and remember it was a, it was a Friday we had a debt option on the table. We had all of these kind of different scenarios that we were looking at. And we were just thinking, you know, this is not going to be something that we can plan with for six months. This is something where if we take on this new debt, if we, for example, look at doing a new round, this is going to alter fundamentally what we want to kind of achieve. And it's also putting the business at considerable risk uh, a little bit down the line if we don't change some of the fundamentals. And I think that's the way that we approached it to the, to the point where then I called Matt early on a Saturday morning and I said, look, we basically kind of looked at the regional structure that we had created where we had all of these MDs, we had all of these people in markets that was a real kind of tactical thing for us because we saw the sale of our system just became much bigger once we've been able to actually kind of deploy people to a country. But we always had a bit of a problem with it because it, it kind of depressed our margins. So it was good for the tactical aspect, but it wasn't really kind of great in terms of where we wanted to be with the business. And I, I remember kind of talking to, to Matt on the Saturday, and it would have represented, you know, a huge, huge cut to the business. But we basically said this structure where we have these general managers and this management structure that's outside of the core and that isn't streamlined, it, you know, sales was being done by the commercial department, but also by these local teams. Customer success was being done by a central department but also by these local teams. And I woke up on a Saturday and I said, if we want to really, really drive huge efficiencies within our business, we've got to get rid of all of the regions. There's just no other way that we can still continue to invest in them and to perhaps even keep a few of them 
it just has to be this great big organizational change where we actually go towards a much more simplified structure that can actually kind of withstand this kind of shock. That's the way that we talked about it. And then I guess we brought the leadership team together on Sunday, talked through it. And by Monday, we were already kind of putting plans in to how we were going to kind of affect that. So it was a really, really strange, strange weekend. But I think it was pivotal to the continued success of our company. So you turned down the debt. I remember the conversations going on around that. You had an incredibly accelerated process of thinking about the fundamentals of your business. And then you put in place some quite far-reaching changes. How did you find that mind shift from a strategy that's all about kind of winning to, to surviving? Did you really think of it in that kind of way? Weirdly enough, at the time, I didn't even really think about it. I think what I was trying to do was, you know, for example, just earlier in that week, I had this session with the rest of the company where I was trying to actually talk through the macroeconomic effects of the coronavirus and kind of talking about essentially giving everyone, even though I'm a terrible economist, but I thought it was important for everyone to kind of understand the wider economy and what's the difference between a V-shaped recovery, a U-shaped recovery, an L-shaped one, and talking about all of those kind of different models. And so for me, I feel like I'd been slowly in that two-week period getting to a mindset where we have to act, we have to act fast, we have to act radically because this isn't something that is a V-shaped recovery. It's not something where it just has an impact and then we go back to the great economy of 2019. It is something that will have a profound effect and we're seeing it in the numbers and those numbers don't look like they're going to be great for the next six months, especially within travel. So we have to kind of be radical. So I think by the time that we did the first round of layoffs, I think on Thursday of that week. What date was that, Richard? I think it was like the 22nd of March. Gosh, it happened so fast, didn't it? Yeah. And then like, I remember on the 22nd, I basically let go of most of the American team that we were putting in to actually kind of have a big push into the US. Yeah, and really kind of, I guess, working with all of the different kind of stakeholders to figure out exactly where we would continue to kind of deploy all of our resources. It was a crazy couple of weeks, but it didn't feel monumental at the time. It just felt like something in the same way that I don't think that the point about growth is that you'd ever decide to grow that quickly. It's just something that kind of, it's there, it's there to kind of take advantage of you end up seeing how you can grow, you affect that growth. You know, once you've kind of have that strategy and have that framework created, I think the the difficult part for me was creating that kind of framework and making sure that everyone within our leadership team was actually aligned around that or that they they could kind of understand it. And you know, and to be fair, you know, the real kind of two-year strategy has still been a work in progress post that, but we've been able to actually kind of act fast to the extent where yeah, we've been able to actually kind of move most of that process to March. So I think by the end of March, we'd been able to actually kind of figure out how many people we need to cut and what was the the structure that we would kind of have going forward. So the fact that that kind of happened over a 10-day period in retrospect was just incredible. But yeah, I think everyone was kind of going through the same thing. Yeah. 
every day, every hour of every day. Should, should we move on? <laughs> That's the rescue mode. Yeah. Not the kind of long-term future, but kind of what are you doing now differently in terms of, you know, how do you work with your customers and how are you working with your employees? What's changed? What's changed is that before we had the luxury of being able to just grow quickly, and so we didn't have to kind of think about, you know, that a lot of things get hidden by growth. You have some inefficiencies in the business that you're kind of always aware of and you know that it kind of doesn't make sense, but you know that it's working, so you don't really want to break it. And then at a, at a moment like this, it becomes your entire kind of focus. So I think one thing that we were able to do actually very, very quickly and very well was, you know, before we were kind of looking at a strategy where we were fighting on many different fronts. We were trying to be fast growth. We were trying to also invest a huge amount into our kind of technical capabilities. And I think one of the big things was just us kind of saying, look, we don't have enough money to be able to go after all of these different clients. So wherever there are low margins, let's just basically not go to that. Let's only have very, very few salespeople that are actually very senior. Let's go after this kind of, I guess, enterprise layer, but not the enterprise layer that I guess exists generally, but the one that's most closely aligned to what we want to do as a product organization going forward. So really kind of zeroing in on not the industry as a whole and trying to change the entire industry in one fell swoop as we were before, but really trying to kind of say, okay, well, these are the hotels that are going to be with us, or these are the brands that are going to be with us at the end of this process. So let's actually really, really invest in them. And let's actually try and get pretty much every single brand that we think represents what that future is. I think that's one of the, the ways that we've changed. And then that also then comes to how do you work with them? And how do we make sure that we, we change our entire organization towards supporting that and towards making them even more successful? So really trying to live the customer success framework to actually kind of define our success by our clients' success. But that was a huge change for the organization because I think you can sometimes, especially in customer success, a lot of it is just you know being able to answer support tickets and being able to feel that you're responding well enough or that you're doing a lot of those things. But I think the main realization that I think we had there was just to say, well, our product has to make the client better. Because if that's broken, then we're just a sales organization. We're not a product-oriented organization. So I think a lot of the work that we did there was really towards you know those things that you always hear that are the real mantras of what good kind of product-led companies should be actually kind of living that day to day. It's interesting, isn't it, that sometimes at this kind of accelerated process, it, it really makes you think about the customers you want to win and the kind of business you want to be and the kind of value you want to offer. Yeah. I love that point of how much growth can hide some of the problems that, that exist and the, perhaps the poorer use of resources. And I wonder how, how does it feel to be executing against that kind of strategy? And are you winning the hotels that, that you really want to win? Yeah, like it's funny because now kind of two months into it, it feels incredibly premature to think about victory, but it feels that some of those things are paying off. It feels like some of those bets paying off. It feels like some of those clients that we had already won are feeling a little bit better looked after or they're feeling that we actually kind of understand them, that it's not just a platitude for the future that we will be doing this 
thing to make them successful, but they now really truly kind of feel it from the entire kind of organization. I hope that, but I, I think that there's there's a shift there. In the same way, for example, with the clients that we're trying to kind of win, I feel like we we actually are now in in conversations that it's good to just have this very much a focus on, you know, we're here because we're trying to win your business and we're trying to actually kind of figure out how we can help you. And I think it then also is about the entire kind of organization because on the one side, the issue that you always have working so closely with some businesses as well is that as a tech company, you never want to be thought of as a kind of custom dev shop. And so it really is about also getting the entire organization to understand why we're investing so much time with a customer because we then internalize what that customer is doing is actually really changing the industry as well. And so that's a difficult kind of balance, but I think it is something where you create some of these kind of innovations, I think, best when some of these clients are truly, truly happy with you and seeing the success that you can actually kind of bring to their organization. And especially in something like travel or hospitality itself, you know, there's a reason for why it's quite a kind of stodgy business because not a lot of people that are from the actual industry realize just how complex it is and just how many systems have actually kind of been there to, to try and automate it. If you think about the first kind of GDSs, so the global distribution systems, those are the first versions of the internet. It's an area that is very, very fragmented, but in a way it dovetails very well with the creation of the internet. You see it now, for example, with you know changes in the NHS. So anyone that was dealing with huge data sets basically before and had made the first jump to some kind of organization is almost at a disadvantage because you end up relying on these very old kind of processes that are very, very difficult to dislodge. So you can see that within government, you can see that within banking. Travel itself is exactly the same. So I'm surprised at how well, knock on wood, it seems to be kind of working so far. But I'm also excited about the challenge of it because rather than kind of relying on, let's say, kind of simpler growth, it feels now we're actually kind of back to solving really, really complex issues that when we started building the technology, that's really what we were actually trying to do and trying to solve for. And doing that with customers who believe what you believe. Exactly. It's not just customers who basically just want to kind of move to the cloud because they've heard it's a thing. It's customers that really want to fundamentally change their business or fundamentally change their business model and are excited about the innovation that we actually kind of bring and are willing to listen to us about our ideas to make sure that we really truly are solving the problems. And helping them be more successful as well. I mean, yeah, which is, exactly. Which yeah. is right at the heart of everything. So can we just talk a little bit about the, the reimagining, and I'm sure you are thinking about the future of the hospitality industry. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering how you're imagining the hotel industry in particular changing and how you, alongside that, see Muse evolving. That's actually a really good word because for me, this all is just an evolution. It's not a revolution. I I would say that it's just become more accelerated. It's also within Muse as a company, but also within the hospitality industry as as a whole. I think what you're seeing is the ways that people thought about what running a hotel was. I I think, you know, still 
even if you kind of go back three months ago, and actually if you go back to 2012, one of the main drivers for why I wanted to start building Muse was basically because I didn't understand why hotels need a reception and especially a reception desk, why you need to kind of like work on a desktop, why that registration process needs to actually kind of happen in that way. That was the main kind of thing that we we started off with. And that's been a difficult way, a difficult process to actually try and get hotels to kind of understand it because you build from the fact that you have a reception desk. And then because you have a reception desk, you need to put people behind it. And then because you've got that person behind it, he's only kind of supposed to be doing one job. And then because you've got that one person doing one job, then you have another person who needs to do another job to supplement the work that he's doing. So coming in and saying, you know, well, you should rip this out. You should think about having an online area. You should think about, you know, the automations that you should do. It feels like you're questioning somebody's entire framework and paradigm. So for that reason, in the end, the ideas that we've always held true, they're just being accelerated through. I think people now are realizing maybe it's going to be difficult to actually have a contact experience at a reception. Maybe those those kinds of client requests are either better done through a self-serve mechanism. And if you have it as a competent self-serve mechanism, well, how can you build on that? How can you redefine what a great customer experience is supposed to be? What's a great hospitality experience if it isn't determined by that person who's actually kind of talking to you? That's what the exciting part of this is, is that the hospitality industry realizes that, you know, it's not just for hygienic reasons, for the health reasons or for cost reasons that you actually have this type of experience, whether it's uh, automatic door locks or keyless check-in or actually kind of contactless payments or the passing of registration information. They also realize that there is genuinely a different way that you could be interacting with your guests. And I think, again, you've seen that in other industries. Like I look at this through the idea of travel. For me, has always been actually quite close to something like entertainment. The idea for me is that in your normal life, you're spending two hours on a weekday transporting yourself and traveling through to a completely different reality through your TV or through your computer or through your VR set. And the reason why travel is so popular is because, you know, sometimes people need those kind of real experiences as well to really feel that they're actually transporting themselves through to somewhere else. And then what they want to do is kind of maximize that. So I think in the same way that, you know, you've seen everything going to a more kind of SaaS or more, I guess, a kind of subscription model, you know, TV going to Netflix, those types of models becoming more prevalent or music going again to a kind of subscription model as well. I feel that those types of things and those types of business models need to actually exist within travel as well so that you can cater for those types of experiences where you are transported to other exciting places and building those types of experiences and memories. That's generally the way that the world is going. And I think it's going away from this transaction model to a more, I guess, a a SaaS-based one. That's the exciting thing about, you know, even imagining what that could look like and what kind of world that could be. And and from our part, thinking about, you know, what technology needs to exist to actually kind of support that so that 
when somebody is changing some of those kind of business models, they're doing it in a way that really, really builds strength for the future. One of the, the striking things that happened after the, the financial crisis, the banking crisis of 08 09, is that we got all these things like open banking and other stuff. So it, it stuck. You mentioned the term accelerated, and it's true that we're seeing a lot of the, the train lines being accelerated, especially in travel, working from home, you know, flexible work, etc. The question, because you might not be aware of that, but I work with tourism boards, OTAs, airlines. Uh, by the way, fix the GDS of the airlines, please. Uh, <laughs> do, you, do you think, do you believe that, because you have this mindset of the future, do you believe that your clients, your customers, are already in that accelerated thinking mode, or are they still thinking, this is a crisis, we need to gap for the moment, and then we'll go back to a normalcy? Or are they seeing, like you, this, oh, we need to shift the model absolutely, not only because there's a pandemic, but also for the future? I think, you know, the, it comes to the question of where does change come from? Does it come yeah. from supply or demand? Yeah. And I think that it comes from a combination. For me, I think the answer is that it comes from us being able to create the tools, get validation from mm -hmm. real customers that actually kind of want to use them and work with them to actually refine it so it does actually kind of suit their needs. There's no point trying to create a one-size-fits-all subscription service that a client just doesn't know how they're actually kind of going to be using. Yeah. But then basically kind of like actually figuring out how you can iterate on that. And once you actually kind of have a few of those models, well, how can you generalize them? And how can you actually kind of make sure that the rest of the economy can do them? And I, I feel that that's roughly how kind of progress happens is that, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of the time progress happens, not just by one person sitting in a room and then releasing the code and everyone going like, wow, this is great. But it's actually through somebody creating a solution to a problem that then gets kind of iterated on. And then you see it, you experience it, you think that it's actually a great product. And then you basically can try and find well, what is the product that really, really, truly works for me. That's generally my kind of theory of progress. Until people see it and until people actually kind of experience it and think that it's better, you might not get the progress, basically. But somebody has to actually create the process for it to start working. The magnificent thing about humans, uh, Stephen used the word earlier, resilience, is that what comes hand in hand with resilience is normalization. We adapt super fast, actually. You get used to stuff yeah. much faster than we think, and it's yeah. quite amazing. It was a fascinating segue about how change happens. And uh, if I take it right back to the beginning, how, how do you feel now? I actually really, really enjoyed that segue because I was just thinking about, you know, the process that we're talking about, you know, normalization. Mm -hmm. It's almost like asking me, what was my feelings when I first had an iPhone? Yeah. You know, and it's just like, well, I, like at the time I was just like, well, it's a telephone, right? And I didn't realize that basically it would fundamentally change the way that I actually kind of enjoy life or live through life in the way that it has. Because at the time, it just felt normal. And I would probably go back to the 17th in that way. Yeah, I think humans are incredibly resilient. And mm -hmm. as much as we're so resistant to change and we are naturally conservative, we have that, you know, sunk cost bias built in within us. And I think for very, very good reasons. I think that at times of crisis and when you're pushed, you actually kind of end up going to those reserves of frustration with, you know, that things haven't changed fast enough. Or, you know, you may have had frustrations with a process before. And so you come to a moment like this of, of crisis and you actually go, well, you know, what better time than now? A huge crisis is a, is a terrible thing to waste. 
And I think that that's probably the prism through which I kind of see this. Like, it's horrible thinking about it because it did impact so many people's lives. It definitely impacted the trust that our employees had towards the company because it's difficult. You know, I, I feel like, you know, the moral questions that come out of it as, as a founder, do you have a moral obligation to growth? Do you have a moral obligation to making these types of quick changes when it's impacting so many people and so many people's lives that have put their trust in you? And so, you know, what is the right kind of balance? You know, in our industry, you have what we try to do and let's try and do it in the best way. Let's try and do it in a humane way. Let's do it sticking to our values. And then you basically have Airbnb coming out the next month doing it in a way that was great, but it's also great because they just had so much more money to throw at the problem. And we just didn't have that kind of luxury, unfortunately. We had to kind of act fast and make decisions that were really, really tough. I'm still struggling with the kind of moral aspect of it to this day and kind of understanding whether those types of decisions that you make as a leader, how justified you can feel yourself being. And then, for example, in terms of how you think about the growth going forward, it's important to kind of grapple with those questions as the head of any kind of organization or as anyone who is building a business. But again, you have moral obligation also to the idea, to the people that remain, to your investors, to, I guess, the idea of progress itself. Yeah, it's a complicated thing. I guess you have to kind of factor in all of those different parts. I'm sure you've read Anti-Fragile by yeah. Nicholas Taleb. So ah, I picked a up a copy of that last night. And the, <laughs> the first line says, wind blows out the candle, but it energizes the fire. And I think that's so profound. You know, fragile businesses or fragile people are affected by these changes in a very profound way. But for businesses that have got real integrity and, and have a real concept of themselves and the problem they're trying to solve and the value they create and a good sound business model, will be energized by this change. Yeah. And that's something we hear across the board. This is the point of startups, right? Like this is the capitalist creative process. You know, you have moments of destruction, you have moments of creation. I really, really liked the whole It's Time to Build manifesto by Mark Andreessen. The actual article I have a few columns with because I feel it's very kind of navel-gazing. But the sentiment was exactly right. And I think that us as technologists and as founders, it's easy to kind of get swept up in the fact that you are raising money, that you're kind of seen as, you know, this is great. But you kind of get lulled into a false sense of security. And your primary function in the world is to basically be a creative and a change agent for the industry that you're working in or for for the types of product that you want to bring in. So I think that that's why I can imagine every single company within your portfolio or, or anyone else's being energized by this because it should tie into the types of things that you're trying to actually kind of change anyway. And it's just making sure that, that you can do that in a sustainable way and that you don't have to go on the defensive like an incumbent that, that kind of represents the way things were. Yeah, you are a creative force for your industry. And, uh, yeah. and without a doubt, you will be energized by this. Richard, it's been fascinating, really fascinating conversation. I feel like we could carry on for another good few hours. I think everyone knows that I have a tendency to over-talk everything. So. No, no, that was yeah. perfect. So excited to see what you come out with in terms of the rethinking of the brand and the positioning. Yeah. 
you know, you you do get fixated on the idea that that actually it's just about growth and just about execution. And those are really, really important. But it's good to have moments like this that actually kind of make you realize like, no, this is about doing things in a new way. This is about doing technology in a better way, in a more resilient way, in a more kind of truer way. And I think that that's something that we're now trying to kind of put into place and uh, affect that change. It's been fascinating getting to know you guys over the last couple of years, and I'm excited to see what you'll achieve in the coming years. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do the whole like you know repaying of the compliment because I feel like you guys know just how special <laughs> I think you guys are as an investor. Right. I do really don't think that you guys get enough credit for the types of things that you actually try and do. And the way that you do help, you know, founders and the way that it is systematic. And I think that that, you know, really kind of goes goes back to your work, Stephen. So, you know, I'm not going to praise you too much. but Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah I find, yeah, thank you. He's, he's, I blush, really, he's blushing. I, he's blushing. I, I am. You can tell I am. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Richard. I really appreciate your time. It was a really fascinating conversation. I really enjoyed it as well. It's always nice speaking to you. Thank, thank you, guys. You.